You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, where it's all about helping you grow your Denver real estate portfolio. Here's your host, Chris Lopez. Good morning, everyone. Chris Lopez here. And today's podcast episode is going to be a new quarterly series uh, that we are officially starting now. So I've had this idea written down since, uh, you know, since I kind of set my goals and business plans for this year back in December, January, earlier this year. And that was to do a quarterly state of the market. And really wanted to record this, give a very like high level overview, you know, anywhere from probably about right around an hour is my goal uh, to give a very high level overview of the market, high level trends, uh, price trends, rent trends, and go through a series of property details so you know what's going on in the market. And then we're going to publish this on the podcast, on YouTube, and also the website. And then that way, for a lot of like a podcast we do, we go into a lot of the details and color commentary on the podcast. But if you want to go get specific links or see the numbers I reference, since we'll be going through a lot of numbers and cap rates, always go to the show notes on here. And the PowerPoint slides, along with links and screenshots and numbers, will all be listed on there as a quick reference guide. So long term, it'll be in a prominent spot on the website, probably under like the start here section of the website, which will be a new section there feature. But right now, click the show notes and the links. Or if you can't find it, uh, shoot me an email. I'm more than happy to send it to you. Um, so... I'm recording this about 7.30 in the morning. I had my first cup of coffee in a matter of the last couple of weeks to get very uh, excited for this presentation. So I'll probably go really fast on here. Uh, but if you want more details, have feedback, have any ideas, definitely let me know because this is going to be a cornerstone presentation we do every quarter. And I want to make it just a, a great presentation for new investors getting in the Denver market and also for you know current investors to help understand what's going on in the market and identify some opportunities. All right. So let's get into it. Um, quick overview. Already talked about this. We'll do market trends, uh, rent trends, vacancy, interest rates. Is it a good time to buy? How we underwrite properties here in Denver. Uh, and then talking about doing some deal analyses as well. And this is where we spend a good chunk of the presentation is giving you the high level overview of the deal analyses. Then we'll end with some current opportunities and just general tips that we are seeing right now in the market. All right, so let's get started. So obviously we are recording this uh, in what end of July of 2020. So this is the quarter three presentation. And we all know what's going on right now. We got COVID-19 going on and just, you know, the economy, the world, it's, it's on a roller coaster right now. So a question I've been getting, and now we're getting a lot more is just, what's going to happen with the real estate market. Now, my disclaimer, I do not have a crystal ball, but I look at a lot of data. I know a lot of people that are smarter than me and I take a lot of their data and what they talk about, do my own research. And here are the high points that I'm going to touch on. If you want all the details, we will we do our monthly market updates where we spend you know 20 or 30 minutes going the deep dive on things. So will prices drop? Um, so this is a chart I'm seeing on the screen right now that shows the last five recessions. In 1980, 1981, 1990, 2001, and 2007. Now nationally, um, in the last three recessions, real estate prices continued to appreciate out of, the th out of three out of the last five recessions. Now here in Denver, we're at prices have appreciated in the four out of the last five recessions. 
The only recession where real estate prices dropped was that 2007, 2008 meltdown. And the high level here is that recessions do not equate to a housing crisis. But in 2007, 2008, that was a housing crisis that turned into the recession. So that's a big difference here for those, you know, a lot of the recessions. And I think what we're going through right now in COVID-19. So from a high level, I do not think prices will drop. And so far, the last, you know, four months of the pandemic, we have seen prices continue to appreciate in all bands of the market, except for like high-end luxury. Well, we're not buying high-end luxury rental properties. So if you take those out, we're still seeing very strong appreciation in first-time home buyer, investor class, you know, houses and single-family homes and condos. We are still seeing prices appreciate. And taking a step back from like the COVID uh, pandemic we're in right now, take a step back in the big picture of the market. And you need to realize that we are in an extreme seller's market. So the graph I'm showing on the screen right now is a graph I really like, and this is also in the show notes as well. It actually plots out the average months of inventory since about the mid 80s up to 2020. And months of inventory is just, you know, how much inventory, how many, how many houses, how many condos do we have on the market? So if you look during the early and mid 90s, which was another housing boom, we were in a seller's market between a two to four months of inventory. They were bouncing around between two to four months. Then in the early 2000s, then going up to like, you know, the, the late 2000s, we got into the crash. We were anywhere from five months to about seven months worth of inventory. And generally speaking, we are at a balanced market between four to six months worth of inventory. Now, if you come in and look at the chart here, basically in two, from 2011, we were at about five months of inventory. 2012, we dropped to just over two months of inventory. And since 2013 on, we have been below two months of inventory. 2019, we had a little bit of inventory creep. We hit right around that two months of inventory mark, but right now we have dropped again. As of July 4th, 2020, we had exactly 1.1 months worth of inventory on the market. So again, a balanced market between four to six months worth of inventory, we were at 1.1 months worth of inventory in July. So going back to very basic supply and demand, we have lots of demand for both renters and home buyers and not enough supply. And that's why we're seeing increased prices and we're still seeing a strong uh, demand for rental properties as well. So I always like to go back to the very basics. And I think a lot of people have taken, you know, Econ 101 or read some book around economics, supply and demand. We have way more demand than we do supply. Therefore, prices will most likely continue to grow up. And so far with the data we've seen from you know, the COVID-19 stuff, we have not seen a slowdown in migration here. I've not seen official data yet, but just from chit-chatting with property managers and other agents, it actually feels like we've seen an uptick in people coming here, you know, from New York City, from California, and that might be because they're trying to get out of the big cities or because they're working from home from now and realize, hey, I can live anywhere I want, and they come to Denver for that great quality of life, and we're still a lot cheaper than a lot of markets around the country. So here's another slide, and this is actually map, uh, mapping number of real estate sales transactions across uh, the total population. 
So it kind of just goes through and you'll see the population go up where it's just a steady, uh, you know, starts on the left side, goes to the right and just goes up, you know, like a 30 or 40 degree angle. And if you're watching the video, that's that purple dotted line there. And then we have a couple areas we've plotted on here where things have been in a bubble, the green box, and where things have been in recession. And so we had a bubble in that 2003 to 2006 timeframe, which was a lead up to the meltdown. And that's because we had a high number of transactions, way higher than, the, in a, than across the population we had. So we were up right around like at the peak of it, just under 50,000 sales transactions for the year across a population of about, you know, just under 2.5 million people. So then it nosedived down into recession and our number of transactions fell well below like the expected transactions based on our population growth. So once we got the recession, I think officially like 2012, 2013, we've been in what we call the Goldilocks stage. And if you go back to whatever, you know, not fairy tale, but nursery tale that was you're reading, you read as a kid where things are just right, you know, not too hot, not too cold, but just right. We're in a Goldilocks stage right now where while it's very competitive out there, the fundamentals make sense. We don't have extreme uh, sales across the population or really low sales as well. So in 2019, um, sales are only 8% higher than in 2004, which was the peak I just talked about. But since then, our population has grown by more than 25% of people. So again, supply and demand. All right, so let's move on to rent trends because as landlords and rental property investors, we are really concerned about tenants paying rent. So starting back in, it was April or May, I started doing some monthly Denver property management updates and these are some podcasts and blog posts. So I'm gonna summarize the last three or four I've done it with you know about four or five property managers. Overall, we've seen very strong rent collections. Across all the property managers, they're basically within a 2% margin of rents collected at that same time or that same month of 2019. So May 2019 compared to May 2020. You know, some property managers were at the same levels. Some were slightly higher. Some were slightly lower. And it was right around that plus or minus 2% mark. So they are still collecting all the rents or, you know, very much similar to the rents. The big difference here is that uh, you know, a higher number of tenants are on payment plans. So rather than getting full rent by the 5th of the month, they're getting it now by the 20th or the 25th. But overall, majority of tenants are paying rents on there. We have continued to see very strong leasing activity. You know, March and April, when we were during that lockdown, it definitely slowed down. But as things eased up in early May, it was just incredibly strong leasing activity. The property managers have seen a higher percentage of tenants that are staying in their current place and renewing their lease, just you know, probably figuring people don't want to move. Um, so we're seeing a lot of tenants stay there. At the time of this recording, the eviction moratorium is set to expire, but there's a 30-day notice period, um, and a lot of property managers have concerns for a big backlog in the courts. So they don't know if the governor will extend the moratorium. And so, and they also don't know how big the backlog will be in the courts for the eviction process. So with everything going on, it's probably not the highest thing on the totem pole. So the property manager's recommendations are to work with your tenants rather than going through the eviction process. So, hey, working at a rental payment plan, doing cash for keys, or doing something like that to avoid uh, the evictions, because that's just 
frankly, in probably everyone's best interest from a pragmatic standpoint. And this is a rough number here I have, but since there is eviction moratorium, a big concern is how many tenants are going to take advantage of, hey, I can't be evicted, so screw you, landlord, I'm not paying rent. So from some rough calculations with property managers, it seems like we're below like anywhere from like a 0.3 to 0.5% of tenants or less are not paying rent. So that's 0.3 to 0.5%. And again, that's just math I was doing while talking to these PMs on the podcast. So that's great news um, that most tenants, they're good people, they want to pay their rent, and they just want to you know, go on with their life. So only a handful of tenants are taking advantage of the system. Now, if you're that landlord, sorry that you know it sucks, but overall, uh, we've seen very good, uh, very good rent payments so far. One thing to keep your eye on, you know, we're recording this at the end of July, and right now Congress is debating uh, what to do with the unemployment benefits and a lot of stuff from the original CARES Act. So that extra $600 a week in unemployment benefits is set to expire soon. I think it's the end of this week. Um, and so if that, you know, if that expires, does not get renewed, you know, that is one thing. Hey, how much of that money are tenants using to pay their rent? We don't know, but that's one thing to keep your eye on. And I will keep you updated in future podcasts. Now, This next data is coming from the uh, quarter two, 2020 Denver Metro Area Apartment Association. And so this is, you know, surveys they do to like the big apartment owners, not, you know, I don't think any of us, you know, us small mom and pop landlords are in this survey, but these are for bigger buildings, a lot of stuff in like the downtown area. So uh, rents are down $30 from a year ago. So they now are about $1,500, $1,506 per month. So down about $30 from year over year, which uh, is not what we're hearing from our property managers who are doing the us, this mom and pop investors there. Uh, they're reporting same rents and also still slightly increasing the rents. So we got some data diverging there. Uh, vacancy was 5.9% in the first quarter. In quarter two, it was down to 5.1%. And this goes with historical trends where we generally see vacancy fall from Q1 to Q2 as we get into a, the, you know, the busier time because Q2 and Q3 are prime time for leasing. And also with all that new apartment construction, uh, about 1,200 units were added to the market in quarter two, but the overall net absorption were about 3,800 units absorbed. So that means that great new inventory came on the line and about 1,200 of that came in Q2, but overall their mark, market absorbed about 3,800 of them. So the market rented out those. So even though we see tons of cranes downtown, uh, for the most part, those are getting rented out. And that's because we still have a huge imbalance of supply and demand. All right, so I'm showing you another slide now. Um, and as a rule of thumb, according to data from five units or bigger, so this is apartment data, because that's where we can get good data. Um, it's very hard to get you know, solid data from all the mom and pop landlords. Uh, but when the rental vacancy is below 6%, we experience rent growth. When vacancy goes above 6%, that's where rent growth can start slowing down or go flat. So right now, our average for the last couple of years has been like 4.8%. You know, quarter two of that report is mentioned was like 5.1%. So we're below that 6% mark still. And that may change, um, but right now 
we're holding strong. Um, you know, so I would personally underwrite, you know, rent still increasing, or if you can be more conservative, underwrite rent staying flat for a year or two while we're going through COVID. Another thing to keep in mind, which is really important from a long-term investing standpoint, is that interest rates are at pretty much historic lows. The average mortgage rate, you know, for a primary residence uh, in early July was at 3.07%. And that's data from Freddie Mac. Um, so that is incredibly low interest rates right now. And so, you know, they were higher, you know, a year ago, they were, uh, investment properties were in the fours to 5%. Now they're in the mid 3%. So a huge drop in interest rates. And we'll talk more about those a bit later because interest rates have a huge impact on the way you buy properties. So this is where one of the things you need to look at, oh, not just the cap rate or not just the rental rate, but hey, what's your borrowing cost? And since borrowing costs have dropped a lot, that can make buying properties a lot more attractive. So a very common question we get is, is it still a good time to buy rentals? So as with a lot of things, there is no clear answer because there's so many variables. A lot of them are personal to you and your goals and your situation to where it just, it depends. But here's the way I kind of went through my own logic for myself. And I've worked with, you know, dozens or probably way more than dozens and dozens of clients right now the last couple of months. What's your personal situation? What's your, do you have job stability? Um, do you have the cash reserves on hand to handle potential issues? If you've heard one podcast of me, you've probably heard me harp on, you know, hold high cash reserves. And we recommend holding six months worth of PITI for your properties. Now, I've been holding higher cash reserves and everywhere from my, my business account, my personal account to my rental accounts. Now for my rental accounts, I'm probably close to eight or nine months worth of PITI per rental, per rental property. Again, just being a little bit more conservative in case I hit the unlucky jackpot. And one of my tenants is that 0.3% and they say, hey, I'm gonna game the system, screw you. The other thing is what's your time horizon for holding the rental property? You know, all the data points towards that if you can hold on to the rental property through, you know, personal ups and downs, market up and downs, you will be very wealthy down the road. So here's an example. If you purchased a home in June 2007, which is pretty much the height of the bubble, and held it for five years, you'd be up by $10,000 in equity. If you held it for eight years, you'd be up over $100,000. Now, can we guarantee that going forward? No. But if you look historically at real estate, and especially the Denver real estate market, if you let the market do its thing, so if you hold on to it for five years, uh, you're going to be usually in a good position. That's why we say, hey, that five to seven years is often the sweet spot for potentially, you know, refinancing or selling your property. From overall, we just went over a couple data points, but from a lot other other data points, we are seeing no major indicators that there will be a price drop. Again, basic supply and demand, lots of demand, uh, very low supply. Uh, so overall, we see no major red flags. The one thing that actually makes it more interesting now, as I alluded to earlier, interest rates have dropped so much that we actually have a better spread of cap rate versus interest rates right now. So not a lot of people get focused on cap rates or cash on cash returns. I'm a big cap rate person. And so your financing costs don't impact the cap rate. Now, it will impact your cash on cash return, uh, but when you look at metrics here, make sure you're taking into consideration that spread between your cap rate and your borrowing cost or your borrowing interest rate, because that's really, really critical. A year ago, we were buying properties around the same cap rate, but our interest costs were higher. Now, interest rates have dropped where we have a 
bigger spread between interest rates and cap rates, which makes them more profitable or a better cash flowing property. So overall, I mean, I've got a good chunk of money in the bank, which is enough for a down payment on one, maybe two properties. Uh, so I am actively out there hunting for properties. Uh, so I am personally not scared. Uh, I don't see any major red flags, but again, I know my financial position. I have high cash reserves. I am comfortable buying, and I want to take advantage of these interest rates and the current cap rates, because historically speaking, as interest rates drop, cap rates continue, continue to get lower and lower or compress more. So I want to buy now, hold on to it, because I think it's a, still a good time to buy for long-term investors that have a solid fi uh, financial foundation. Now, as I said, there's a lot of what ifs. This is personal to you. We are always happy to get on like a one-on-one -on -one phone call or Zoom call nowadays to do a, an investment strategy consultation. As I would say for about eight out of 10 of my clients, it makes sense for them to keep going forward and buying. And then there's about 20% based on some, you know, personal situations or, hey, we're not quite sure what's happened to, you know, their industry. I'm like, cool, sit tight for a few months. Um, so we're always happy to talk about that and give you a more personalized insight into your situation, the market, your goals. So reach out to us if you want to chat. All right, so let's switch gears here now. I gave you the quick overview on the market updates, or at least, I guess, kind of quick. Um, but let's talk about going into the uh, what's going on in the market right now. And so a very common question I get is, oh, I can't find a property that meets the 1% or 2% rule. And this is a rule that's often cited from a bigger pockets. Uh, so Bigger Pockets, if you guys don't know about it, it's a great website, uh, great education, social networking uh, website for real estate investing. So I like it a lot, uh, but they have this rule of thumb there and it's been there for, you know, I say forever, I don't know, you know, years or a decade or so where, hey, you want to buy properties that should, that should meet the 1% rule staying. Hey, if a property, you know, the purchase price or the, the monthly rental price should be 1% of the purchase price. So if I go out there and buy a property that rents out for $1,000 a month, what's that? That means I should go out there and buy a property that's $100,000. Yeah, we don't find those in Denver. Or hey, if it's $2,000 a month in rent, we should go out there and buy a property that uh, is $200,000. Again, we don't find those. So understand those are generic rules of thumb from a website that's not Denver specific. Um, so ignore those rules because they do not work in Denver and you'll miss out on a lot of long-term wealth building if that's what you focus on. The other rule of thumb to forget about is that 50% rule. Again, this is another thing from bigger pockets. The 50% rule states that 50% of your rental income will go towards all the property operating costs. So basically everything except for your you know, mortgage payments, so your principal and interest payment. In the Denver Metro, we're typically seeing between a 25 to 35% of rents going towards operating cost. So we use the 33% rule or the one-third rule as a quick rule of thumb saying, hey, about one-third of your rental income will go towards all your operating costs. So don't use a 50% rule because that's just way too high here in Denver. Now, as I go through these numbers here on this presentation, on all of our other presentations, I want to stress that we underwrite conservatively and realistically. Because if you've been analyzing properties, you've probably seen listing agents say, oh, this is a 7% cap rate property. Great, we underwrite it. It's a 4.7% cap rate property. Who's right? Well, I mean, personally, I think I'm right. But in reality, it depends how you underwrite the property. And so we underwrite realistically and conservatively. 
And so if you're hearing our cap rate numbers, okay, that sounds low. Make sure you dig in the numbers and compare it to the way you are underwriting it or another investor or another agent's underwriting it because it probably comes down to the details. And this is an area where in details we put a lot of time into. So I have on the slide here some of the rules of thumb that we use. Um, if you want the details on here, definitely check the show notes. From a high level, we put 5% for vacancy. Most of our property managers charge 7 to 8% per month. Well, we usually underwrite an 8 to 10% a month, or I'm sorry, 8 to 10% of gross rents to help account for lease-up fees and other miscellaneous property management costs. Repairs and reserves, we underwrite anywhere from 5 to 10%, depending on the property type and quality of property. And then we're using you know real insurance costs and actual property taxes costs. So when I go through these next numbers here, realize that we're, we're going towards that 33% rule and they were underwriting with property management with historic vacancy and realistic numbers for repairs, maintenance, CapEx, all that stuff. All right, so now I'm gonna go through some very high level uh, details on the market. So I'm gonna give you some generalizations here. So generally speaking, detached single family homes. So these are your, you know, three bedroom, four bedroom, five bedroom houses that, you know, are not attached to other properties have the lowest cap rates in Denver. We're typically seeing anywhere from like a low 4% to a low 5% cap rate. Now, if you go by a, a room by room rental strategy, or you find a house with an additional dwelling unit or mother-in-law suite, we're offering cap rates between a 55 to 7% or greater cap rate. So there are some ways on there you can get greater cap rates. Now realize the room by room rental strategy gives you great cash flow, but frankly, it's often too much work for most investors, myself included. I like to always tell uh, people that for me, the juice isn't worth the squeeze because you're dealing with four or five separate leases there. And I've yet to find any high quality property managers that I would feel comfortable using myself or recommending that we do manage room by room rentals. I've met one or two that do so far, um, but I've not been confident in using them or recommending them. The other thing to keep in mind is that you need to be aware of the occupancy rules if we do that room by room rentals. Uh, Denver, basically if you get a waiver, they say you have up to three unrelated people. Different markets around town will be different occupancy rules. Make sure you know them and then make sure you know what your comfort level is for following them or like some investors, not following them. So generally speaking for down payments on here, and this is for rentals, not owner-occupied house acts, you can go anywhere from a 15 to 25% down payment. All right, so some quick numbers. This is a detached single-family residence in Lakewood, so the west side of town that we closed on in quarter one, 2020. Five bed, three bathrooms, just over $400,000 in purchase price, a 25% down payment. They were all in for around $110,000. It's a 5.2% cap rate. So right in the range we talked about, and this is a, the better range we talked about, annual cash flow after all of our conservative underwriting is just under $3,000 a year. Now they purchased it, they got the rate at 4.5%. If you go buy that property today, interest rates will be right around 3.5%. So if you put that new lower interest rate in there, their cash flow increased by a few thousand dollars a year up to about $5,000 a year. If you want all the details on that one, go listen to podcast 154. All right, example number two for detached single family homes. This is when we closed in quarter two of 2020. So I think this was actually, we closed on this, uh, yeah, like mid-May. 
Uh, and so this was a single family home uh, in Southwest Denver uh, with an ADU. So it's a five bedroom, uh, two bath house and say one bedroom, one bathroom ADU. Purchase price was just under $440,000. Our investor client put down 20%. He was all in for about $92,000. His interest rate was at 3.75%. Cap rate is at 6%. So since this is an ADU property, we're seeing a better cap rate. Now his annual cash flow is just under about $6,700 for the year. So great property, uh, just Houses with ADUs are very hard to find, and they often get bid up a lot. So, you know, hey, we can find these occasionally, but would love to find more. So if you ever have one or sell one, give me your phone call. You know, call me first. Uh, me or a client will definitely buy. If you want the details on this podcast, go to 179. All right, so the next type of property type, so we talked about detached single-family homes. Now we'll talk about attached, so with an A, attached properties. These are your townhomes or condos because they are attached to other other properties out there. So in 2019, we were buying a lot of these properties right around a 7% cap rate. But cap rates have continued to compress uh, all into 2020, and now we're buying them between a mid-5 to a low-6 cap rate. Um, And from a very high level, condos tend to be the best cash flow and the most turnkey. All times, it's like, great, buy the place, uh, Rent-ready costs are typically between zero to $5,000. And these are usually minor updates. Uh, paint, new flooring, replace a window, replace the electrical panel and, that a property manager can definitely handle for you, no problem. So down payment, assume 25% for rentals. Again, not house acts. Uh, won't go into all the underwriting rules, but if it's a condo, just assume 25% because most likely that's what they require. Here's a tip. If you want to buy one of these properties, make sure you're working with an agent and a lender that can navigate these investor-heavy HOAs. We've seen a lot of lenders that are great in traditional lending get tripped up with these HOAs because they have some, uh, they throw some curveballs to underwriting or some reference that people don't know. So a reason that we do win these properties is because we do a lot of work with Joe Massey, for example. He invests in these condos himself. He does a lot of loans in those condos. He knows how to handle these HOA complexes. So make sure you have the right lending and the right team lined up for taking down these condos. It's going to be great cash flow, but they come with some tricks for underwriting. All right. So quick example. Here's a three-bedroom, two-bathroom condo in Aurora. It's actually one that I purchased. Closed on it in uh, March of 2020. I bought it right around $195,000. I put down 25%. So all in for about $60,000 for down payment, closing cost, and I had like $4,000 in rent-ready cost. My interest rate was 3.875%, and this was a 6.2% cap rate. So my annual cash flow is just about $4,000 a year. So listen to podcast 153 for all the details. All right, example number two. This is uh, titled Aurora Condo with a value-add play. So we actually closed this in uh, right at the end of quarter four in 2019. It's a three-bedroom, two-bathroom condo with an option at a fourth bedroom. There were like two living rooms, and this is one of the complexes we know where, hey, we can go in there, spend $1,000 or $1,500, add some drywall, uh, frame in a door. Great, you got a fourth bedroom now. So this purchase price was $259,000 at a 25% down payment. So total initial investment is $68,000. Uh, 
interest rate, again, this was right before interest rates started dropping, interest rates at 5%. So this puts that cap rate of 5.6%, annual cash flow about $2,000. Now, these are numbers before that uh, second living living room has been converted to a fourth bedroom. So once our client does that, uh, they will get higher rent. And at the time they purchased it, uh, they and the property manager reviewed and said, hey, you know what? Numbers are good. Let's just rent it out as is right now and do the fourth bedroom later down the road. So if they were to, and actually the clients are currently refinancing this property and their other ones to like take advantage of the lower interest rates. Once they refinance to like the mid threes, their cash flow will increase from about $1,900 a year to about $4,000 a year. And once they convert the fourth bed or the living room to a fourth bedroom, they should see increased rents as well. All right, let's talk multifamily now. Now, I break multifamily into two different subsections of multifamily. Two to four units, which is, I call them small multifamily, and five units or greater. So why do we have that distinction? Well, this comes from really from lending. If it's four units or less, so a, a fourplex, a triplex, a duplex, or single family home, it is a residential property and residential lending. Once you get into five units or greater, becomes a commercial a commercial lending world. And these are completely two different worlds here. So um, realize the first section I'm going to talk about is two to four units on here. So I know a lot of people, whether it's house hacker, especially for house hackers, but a lot of investors in general, hey, great, I want to go out there and buy a duplex or fourplex. And then they go look at inventory line. They're like, hey, I'm not seeing much. What's what's going on? It's like, yeah, well, that's that's the market right now. <laughs> we have very, very low inventory for multifamilies. Uh, they are hard to find and they are competitive. Um, and so we are generally buying these properties uh, anywhere from a high 4% to about a mid 5% cap rate. Sometimes a little bit lower, sometimes a little bit higher, but just if you want a simple thing in mind, think about five to mid five cap rate is where a lot of stuff is falling. Actually a high four to mid five cap rate. So, you know, pre-COVID-19, so before the interest rates drop because of what the Fed and the government is doing, we often would have our clients work with a local bank, such as like First Bank, and they're a portfolio lender where they're lending out their own money because they could do a 20% down payment um, and they would do a five or seven year arm, but their interest rates would be around 4%. Now, pre-code, if you did a conventional loan, which is that 30-year fixed stuff through Freddie and Fannie, you are required to put 25% down. And a lot of times interest rates would be like mid four to low fives. So great, you get a lower interest rate and put less down. A lot of our clients were going towards local lenders for better leverage and a lower interest rate. Now, since interest rates have dropped, a lot of those clients are refinancing to 30-year fixed. And a lot of our clients are now buying properties with conventional financing because great, you have to put 25% down, but now you're getting a 30-year fixed, uh, you know, somewhere between a mid three to a high three interest rate. So lower interest rate than what the banks can give you, now it's on a 30-year fixed note. So keep that in mind. It actually makes these, I think, really attractive right now. Now, for a lot of these properties, uh, we do find a lot of these off-market um, because a, you know multifamily tends to trade off-market more. All right, so here's a couple examples we'll go through. So here's a Aurora duplex that we just closed on like mid-June or end of June. Um, so it's in North Aurora. Uh, both units are two-bedroom, one-bath, classic all brick, you know, ranch style, side-by-side -side duplex you see all around town. 
Purchase price was right about $415,000. Down payment is 25%. They did a 30-year fixed. So all in, they were about $110,000 all in at a 3.625% interest. That puts it at a 5.3% cap rate and an annual cash flow of about $5,000. So like I said, we just closed this a few weeks ago, and we'll be doing all the details on this in a future deal analysis podcast. Um, here's another example, and this is actually a fourplex in Lakewood. Uh, so, you know, not too far from Sloan's Lake, um, not too far from, uh, what's that? Oh, I forget. There's that new, like, the cool commissary eatery over there. You know, we got the breweries and all the, the food stalls. Uh, I can't think of the name of it. Um, so we have not closed on this, but this is an active off-market one that we were hunting down for a client. It's got three one-one units and one two-one unit. Now the purchase price is just over a million dollars on here because it is a, an amazing location. I mean, great walkability, transitioning area across from a park. So just great, great location. And it's completely remodeled, like down the studs, remodeled up, all permitted, all that stuff. So 25% down payment is about $270,000. These are estimated total initial investment. Interest rates can be right around a 3.5% interest rate. And a cap rate will be right now where it looks like about a high four cap rate, maybe a 5% cap rate. So again, you're looking at you know different parts of town. You generally see higher cap rates in Aurora than you will on the west side of town. Um, so that high four cap rate is right in line with what we've been talking about. It should cash flow about ten thousand dollars a year, maybe a little bit more because it's it should be completely turnkey. So hopefully lower you know repairs and maintenance. Um, let's see here. So yeah, like I said, this is an off market one. Hopefully we can put the deal together and we'll be going into a lot of details on this in a future podcast. Um, but this is just another example of, a, of an active fourplex out there. Uh, definitely on the higher side of the purchase price, but look at the cap rate versus interest rate spread. If we were looking at this a year ago and they're doing 30-year conventional financing, the rates would be right around like a 5%. Well, if your cap rate's at 5% and your interest at 5%, it's going to be a neutral to negative cash flowing property. But now since interest rates have dropped so much, it makes it a lot more attractive. Hey, cool, yeah, it's a low cap rate, but man, interest rates are so low, I got that spread. So that's one reason this looks very attractive to us. All right, shifting gears here. Let's talk about the bigger multifamilies. These are the five plus units. So this is the commercial lending here. So uh, in this area, we're typically seeing cap rates between a high four to a mid five cap rate. Now, We've got a couple of deals right now. We're actually seeing some higher five to low six cap rates because I think we just scooped up a couple of good deals with the COVID stuff going on. Uh, some properties got kind of stuck in the market, bad timing for listing or bad time for selling. So work to our advantage. But generally a high four to a mid five cap rate for these five plus multis. Now a little bit of history here or context. Uh, when COVID hit, um, since a lot of the lending for these uh, multifamilies come from local banks, the First Banks, the Westeras, the credit unions, the Colorado banks, um, that lending world froze basically for like, I don't know, four weeks to eight weeks. It just froze where banks, you know, no one knew what was going to happen, how bad were renters going to pay or not pay. So they, they basically froze there for a while. Towards the end of quarter two, you know, banks started lending again. And the terms came back pretty similar to what they were before. They have a few stricter underwriting rules, but rates and all that stuff are pretty similar to what we saw before. So we're seeing rates between mid threes to low 4%, depending on how much you're putting down 
And most of these properties are going to be in a five-year, seven-year, or 10-year arm, adjustable rate mortgage is what ARM stands for. So the, the shorter your ARM period, the lower the rate. The longer your ARM period, the higher your rate will be. So that three and a half is what we're seeing right now for like that five-year. Um, of course, depends on you and the property as well. But you know, mid threes to low fours is what we're seeing right now. So again, we got a good spread between interest rates and cap rates. So as a note, these five-plus multis are where we're currently seeing the best value-add opportunities in the market. And that's by increasing rents, updating the units, you know, a cosmetic turn, three dollars to $5,000 to turn the unit, new kitchen, new bathroom, new flooring, um, implementing utility billback, and also bringing in better property management. A lot of these places we're seeing, great, they've been owned, you know, 30 years by the, the owner. And a lot of times they, you know, they're now, uh, you know, getting older, properties paid off. Oh, I got great tenants. They self-manage and their rents are below market. They're getting lots of money on the table. And so it's like, hey, great, we can come in here and buy it. And over, you know, anywhere from like a 12 to 18 month turn, go around, update the units. Obviously, it depends on how many units you have in the property. And so, you know, turn one or two units at a time. That way, cash flow is still coming in from the other four, six, 10, 12, 15 units. And then, you know, as leases turn, go update one or two units at a time, update the unit, bring it to market rent, implement utility bill back, charge for parking and storage, you know, everything you can to go out there and truly make the property better performing. And then have that done within you know, a year to year and a half and have it stabilized with a few months of operating data. Then you can go on there and refinance it and then pull part of your initial investment back. So I know a lot of people want to do the Burr strategy and that's incredibly hard to do in single family homes. It's, it's hard to do in those smaller duplexes or smaller multis as well. But we're seeing the best opportunity here right now in that five plus multifamily. And a lot of it's, you know, relatively easy, um, especially since you can do it unit by unit and still have cash coming in to like pay all your bills. And then you're coming out of pocket to do some updates or maybe getting construction loan to do that. So let me run you through an example here of one that we uh, took down, I think right at the end, end of quarter one. So this is an eight unit near Denver University. And this is the actual numbers I will give you, and then we'll go into pro formas. Uh, eight studios. Purchase price was $1.26 million, 25% down payment, right around a 3.625% interest rate. Cap rate's at 4.7. So it's definitely the lower side of what we normally buy, and it'll cash flow about $7,000 a year. But it's lower cap rate because we see a great value-add opportunity here. So the plan is to, two units need to be updated. We're estimating about $15,000 in total work. Bring all units up to market rent as leases turn. Implement utility bill back. So, hey, great. The landlord's paying for water, sewer, trash. I think maybe gas on this one as well. So, great. Implement utility bill back to shift those utility costs to the tenants. Uh, the previous owner was not charging for parking or storage. Charge for those. Bring in better property management and stabilize over the next year. And then there are plans to refinance into a non-recourse loan. A non-recourse loan is like a Freddie loan, which means that you are not personally guaranteeing it. So it's very strict underwriting, but that way if, if the property defaults, they only go after the property and not after you as the individual. So for these you know, five plus multi-units, you can get into the, the non-recourse lending world. So their plans to do a non-recourse and also pull out some cash as well. So our conservative pro forma with updated rents and everything shows a 5.3 cap rate. 
the optimistic pro forma shows a 6.3% cap rate. So we like to usually do a range on the pro forma because, hey, cool, here's kind of like conservative worst case scenario. Here's best case scenario. And most likely it'll fall somewhere between the two, hopefully on the higher side, but we like to be realistic. So at the 6.3 cap rate, it'll cash flow close to $27,000 a year. And depending on where the numbers come into play, interest rates, all this stuff, they should be able to pull out anywhere from 100 to $225,000 of cash. So, I mean, that's a significant amount of cash that they can pull back. And that's going to be a huge down payment on the next property that these clients want to buy. So listen to podcast 163 for all the details. All right, so let's talk about house hacking here. So house hacking is where you buy a place as an owner-occupant, meaning that you actually move into the property and then you rent out, you know, uh, room by room or the other unit to tenants. And so you are reducing your lower, I'm sorry, you're reducing your monthly living expenses. And the reason people do this is because they get very favorable down payment terms and a lower interest rate. So I just talked about a lot of these down payments on investment properties were between, you know, 20 to 25%. And we were talking, you know, uh, you know, mid threes to high three interest rates. On house hacking properties right now, you can put as little down as anywhere from like zero to 5%, depending on the loan type you can, you can use. And interest rates are from like high twos to low threes. So like uh, we've closed anywhere last couple of weeks, 275, 2.75 to about three and a quarter. So depending on the property, your personal credit, and if you want to buy down interest rate or not, you're going to be right around that 3% range. So a lot of people, you know, they, they discover house hacking through, again, Bigger Pockets, a great resource. Like, oh, cool. But Bigger Pockets always goes out there and just shows a duplex or fourplex. And clients come in, oh, great. I want to come buy this. I want to come buy a multifamily here in Denver. Sounds great on paper, but it's hard to execute in Denver due to the limited inventory, higher investor competition, and the FHA health and safety appraisal guidelines. If you want all the details on there, email me. I'll send you a link to all those details so you can, you can understand them. Here are the stats from about the last, I don't know, I think it's like 15 months of properties I analyzed a couple months ago. About 10% of our house hacks we purchased were multis, 20% were condos or townhomes, and 70% were detached single family homes. And that's because of market conditions. And also an important note to understand is that these stats also include our repeat clients who are in property two, three, four, uh, five house hacks. So generally speaking, once you get past house hack number one, you can no longer buy multi due to lending situations. So those stats will definitely be skewed some because we have our repeat clients in here and they're limited. They can't buy multis. They can only go out there and buy single family residences. Okay, so let's go through an example here. Here's a room by room house hack in Aurora that closed in quarter one, 2020. Five bed, two bath, um, and I like this property a lot because it's just a great base hit, great double um, in North Aurora, not too far from the Anschutz Medical uh, Complex. Purchase price was three seventy-five. He did a five percent down payment, and his he was all in for about twenty-seven thousand dollars. Now this was right before interest rates dropped. He got his rate at three point eight seven five percent. If you were to buy that today, he'd be right on that three percent mark. So underwriting it as a House hack turned a rental property when he moves out. So he's going to have to live there for that one-year owner-occupant requirement. He moves out. 
and he's going to do rent four bedrooms by themselves individually, it'll be at a 7, 7.1% cap rate. So going back a few minutes ago when I talked about single-family homes and that room-by-room rental strategy, if you do that, you're going to see cap rates around 7%. But keep in mind, a lot more you know leasing and headache, and you have to be mindful of the occupancy rules for unrelated people living in the property. By doing this, he'll be cash flowing just under $5,000 a year as a future rental property. Now, shifting gears back to while he's living there as a house hack, his living expenses will be just around $350 a month. And that's mortgage, taxes, insurance, repairs and reserves, um, paying all utilities, everything. His share will be about $350 a month because he's living in you know bedroom one and renting out three other bedrooms. So his other bedrooms are running out right around $800 a month. I mean, he's building equity in a place and he's living for about $350 a month, which you cannot find a room in Denver that I've seen for $350 a month. So it's a great deal now and a great deal when he moves out as well. So podcast 144 has all the details on there. So let's talk about a duplex house hack. This closed in quarter one and this is in, in Wheat Ridge. Uh, and this was a big duplex. One style was a four bed, two bath. And then there's a garage that separates two units. And then there's a two bed, one bath unit on the other side. So side-by-side -side duplex. Purchase price was $545. The client used a 3.5% down FHA loan. His total investment cash all is right around $30,000. Interest rates about 3.5%. And cap rate is 53 3%. And this is, again, assuming once he moves out and he's renting, you know, unit one to a tenant and unit two to a tenant, no room by room stuff, just classic traditional landlord renting. It'll be a negative cash flow of about $1,400 a year or about negative $100 a month. So this is something that you need to keep in mind. So again, house hacking properties is depending on how you rent it when you move out, you may be right around a break even cash flow. Um, and depends on what your financial situation is like. Personally, I'm fine with this because you're buying, you know, a 3.5% down loan is not meant to be an investor loan. Um, so I like to do very low down payments, take a little negative cash flow, but keep a lot of cash in the bank. Now, uh, he may refinance in a couple of years and, and refinance in a conventional loan to get rid of the mortgage insurance from FHA, which is like $400 a month or so usually. So if he just gets rid of that mortgage insurance, he'll go from a negative cash flow property to making like $2,000 a year or so. So other, a lot of ways you can manipulate numbers here and you want to understand what you can do with house hacking. So I won't go any more details on here um, because, yeah, just for time considerations. Uh, and I'll give you more, more resources here in a minute on house hacking. Uh, something I want to talk about now is another strategy we use called nomading. So nomading is often confused with house hacking. They are very, very similar, but we keep them distinct in our minds. Nomading is an investment strategy where you're buying a future rental property as an owner-occupant to get those favorable loan terms, but you do not have roommates or tenants, then you move out after that one-year occupancy requirement and turn to a rental property. So Everything is the same about house hacking, except you're buying with the intent of, hey, this is a future rental property. I'm going to live here for one year and then move out. But you don't have roommates or tenants while you're living there to help reduce your living expenses. So this is a strategy that's often used by families, you know, husband, wife, couple kids, um, or couples, um, or just people that want a little bit more privacy. And so it's a phenomenal way to acquire rental properties for little money down while also having 
extreme privacy. You just have to move every year or two for a couple of times to build a lot of to build a portfolio. So uh, in quarter two, 2020, we closed on a Nomad property in Westminster. It's a three bed, two bath, just under 350 purchase price, 0% down VA loan. So all in cash, all in the close on the property was about $8,000. Interest rate, 3%. This is a 4.3% cap rate property when he moves out using our conservative underwriting. Now it shows a native cash flow about $4,000 a year. So this is a conversation again. You have to decide what you want to do because he put 0% down the property. Don't expect the cash flow at 0% down. Now, if he wants room by room, self-manages, he can definitely bring that number up. But sticking with our conservative underwriting, it's going to be negative $4,000 a year in cash flow. Like I said, there's lots of levers here that you can play with to increase cash flow to actually make this a performing property. So listen to podcast 185. Uh, in quarter one, 2020, we closed on a three-bedroom, four-bathroom townhouse in Littleton. And this is a family nomad, husband, wife, two little kids. Purchase price of $322,000. Down payment at 5%. Cash all in about $25,000. 3.75% interest rate. And this is a 5.5% cap rate. Now, when they move out, their annual cash flow about $700 a year. In my mind, that's a break-even cash flow. Podcast 146 has all the details. Now, I briefly mentioned quite a few details about, you know, uh, different lending options, different things you can do with PMI, uh, how to manipulate numbers to make it better cash flowing. I touched on that really quick. Um, but in a few weeks after this podcast releases, we are publishing the Ultimate House Hacking Guide for Denver which is a technical guide to building a Denver rental portfolio through house hacking that goes through all these details. If you have any interest in house hacking and nomading, make sure you read the book or listen to all the podcasts. Um, it's going to be a, I think it's a 15 part podcast and also be about a 50,000 word book that comes out. Content similar, just depends how you want to digest it. The book will definitely have a little bit more, uh, um, be more succinct and concise in the podcast. Um, so, you know, it depends how you, how you want to learn or, or consume the information. But I would definitely recommend reading or listening to that if you have any interest in doing um, house hacking because that goes into all the details and lots of examples about how to manipulate all the different levers that you can pull as an owner-occupied investor. All right, so that's the Ultimate House Hacking Guide that should be coming out in August of 2020, so just a couple weeks after this podcast comes out. All right, so a couple of things, and then we'll wrap up here. I get a lot of people asking me, hey, what about flipping? And what about the buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat, the Burr strategy here in Denver? So these two items are definitely not our specialty. Um, you know, we're very much focused on buying rental properties for ourselves and our clients. And that's really because I, I always tell people this, and I'll keep saying this probably for the rest of my real estate career, that flipping and burring is not direct investing like it is buying rental properties. It is more operating and starting a business. Not that there's anything bad about it, but just like, hey, starting a, a whatever franchise or becoming a real estate agent or whatever it is, you're starting a business. Understand it's gonna take a couple years to get things off the ground, up and running. And that you need to be proactive about building your business. You know that time frame in your mind. You're not gonna come in, oh, cool, I, I read a few books on bigger pockets, listen to podcasts, I wanna, I wanna burn out extremely hard to do. And I highly doubt that one contact 
or one agent will, will give you everything you need to do because there's so many moving parts on here. So many people are doing both successfully, but they are a lot of times the more seasoned veterans and they're also taking that business approach. So some general tips for success here. Um, make sure you network with everyone as much as possible. Agents, investors, wholesalers, people in your network, you know, knock on doors if you have time for it. You have to network to drum up deals. Make sure, and also contractors, you gotta get all this stuff lined up in here. So we're always happy. Hey, cool, let us know what you're looking for. If we see a property, we'll definitely send it in your way. But we should be one of a few agents you talk with if you wanna do flipping and burring. Clearly, have clearly defined criteria for desired property type, numbers, location, all this stuff. Hey, give me four bullet points or three sentences on what you want. Because if you are not clear on what you want, no one's going to bring in the type of property that you want. If you can't clearly communicate it to you, if you cannot clearly communicate it, no one's any idea what you want. So if you don't know what you want, they can help you find it. Now, I see a lot of investors, oh, I want this type of property, bring me a deal. And people are like, cool, hey, I found one, here's a deal. And the client's like, oh, no, 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 I, no, this doesn't work out. And it's like, whoa, 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 why? And I, this happened to me quite a few times. You said if it meant this, this, and this, that's what you wanted. It meets all three of these, and now you're giving me something else where it doesn't meet this. And cool, I get that it happens sometimes. That's part of the reason a lot of times these deals, they go to veteran or experienced investors because they have their criteria completely dialed in and they make a quicker decision than all newbie investors will. So if a deal comes along that fits your criteria, execute. Otherwise, people stop bringing you deals. Make sure you have your financing lined up and financing and contractors lined up as well, I should say. Uh, because if a deal comes, you need to act fast. That's not the time to go out there and start talking to hard money lenders. You should have done that months ago. Now, if you're going for the Burr strategy, have your takeout financing ready to go as well. A common mistake is people get their hard money loan and they don't have their takeout financing in place to do the, the long-term finance component turn to rental property. And for some reason they find out they can't and now they shot themselves in the foot or they're stuck with a high interest rate hard money loan and it gets ugly. So have both your hard money or your short-term financing and your takeout financing lined up and ready to go. A couple of the resources on here in quarter one, I did like an eight or nine part series with Derek Marlin of Elevate. He's a local flipper. He also has some educational components on flipping. It's called Elevate Your Flip. If you want to get into flipping, great uh, series to go through. We go through some deals on there. We go through how to find properties. So a great resource on there. All right. Other considerations for flipping and burring. Uh of all the strategies, I would say the burr strategy is the hardest in our current seller's market. Burring usually works best in a buyer's market, which is the opposite market conditions that we are in now. And so investors who are burring, they're the experienced ones, as I mentioned earlier. Remember, these can be great businesses, but businesses take time to build, scale, and become profitable. So if you want to flip or burr, great, do it. My recommendation is make sure you're investing while you're doing it. I've talked to a lot of people that want to flip. Um, like, oh, I want to flip. I'm like, great. And they're renting an apartment right now. I'm like, hey, great. While you're flipping, you should go out there and buy a house hack. That way you're building equity and you're buying a future one. Probably good. So if you want to do one of these, now, I'm, you know, these are oftentimes, like, you know, like, you know, single, you know, young single people that want to get into flipping. Great. Do it. But make sure you're taking some easy base hit investings along the way. Go out there and buy a house hack, get a few roommates, reduce living expenses and, and build up equity. 
or nomad if that works better for your family situation. So, because I've talked to a lot of people, oh, I want to flip. I'm like, great. Here's my two cents, everything we just talked about. And then I, I two years later, they're still looking for a flip and, have, and own zero properties and still renting. I'm like, hey, you've house hacked once or twice then. You've got one or two future rental properties and you'd be wealthier now. So keep that in mind. Um, so here is the strategy I'm focusing on. So I know a lot of investors um, who don't have the time to go spend 20 hours a week to build a burr or flipping business, their investing strategy is to ride the trends of the market. So buy rental property, then after five or seven years, do a cash out refinance or sell and trade up. Let the market do its thing, which should be continued appreciation. Let your tenants pay down your debt, build some equity, tap in the equity and go out there and buy another property. So again, this will not get you rich overnight, but you do this over 20 years, you can retire. Or do a delayed flip. So this is buying a property and transitioning part of town. So think, you know, near Anschutz Medical Complex. Think parts of Federal and Sheridan on the west side of town where, you know, you can drive them down to these neighborhoods and he's like, oh, old home, old home. Oh, scraped home. Old home, old home, old home. Oh, a dumpster, another dumpster because those properties are being renovated. So buy a property there where the, the property is in good enough rental shape or might need a few bucks to make it good enough rental. Then turn into rental. And then after three years, five years, seven years, after that property turns, uh, and once the tenant moves out, do a delayed flip, rehab it, and then sell it to an owner-occupant. And then you should get the high, you always get the highest and best use for money by selling it to an owner-occupant, then you will it to another investor. Investors want deals, owner-occupants want a place to live. Um, then take that money, or I'm sorry, sell the property, take the money, 1031 it to defer your capital gains and go out there and buy another property and repeat. So these are my two strategies right now I'm doing, allow what my clients are doing as well. So that's just some food for thought while you're out there if you want to pursue flipping and burring. All right, uh, last part of the presentation here, and this is titled Opportunities and Tips. So this is just some opportunities we're seeing and just some general tips we're seeing in the market right now. So the biggest opportunity is take advantage of these low, low interest rates. So refinance your primary residence and or your rental properties. Here are two examples that I've done. You know, in November, 2019, I had just done a cash out refinance on my primary residence. I took out like $100,000. I spent like $8,000 and buying my interest rate down to 3.75. I was like, wow, that's so low. Yeah, lock it in. And then COVID happened and interest rates plummeted. So I was like, okay, numbers make sense to refinance again. So I refinanced down to a 2.75% interest rate. So that saves me over $200 a month in savings. I bought a fourplex last year at five and a quarter. Now, earlier I talked about doing a portfolio lending at 20% down and, and five or seven year arms. I opted to do a 25% down payment and do a 30 year fix. I like to have long-term interest rates fixed in. That just fits my risk profile better than the, an ARM interest rate. So I'm in the process. I should actually close on this next week, probably when this podcast releases. I should be closing out right when the, you're listening to this podcast in early August. Um, my new interest rate will be 3.5%. So going from five and a quarter to three and a half, I will save over $600 a month in savings. So look at refinancing. And also look at buying as well, but definitely refinance for your position too. Tap into your equity. If you've owned a property, so your primary or rental for a few years, you're probably sitting on a significant amount of equity. Now, if it's a house hack, 
you may want to refinance out your FHA. If it was an investment or you're current in your primary, consider putting a HELOC on there, a home equity line of credit. I like HELOCs for short-term projects. If you're going to use a HELOC to do a burr or do a flip, great, do a HELOC. If you want to pull out the cash to go out there and buy another rental property, I recommend a cash-out refinance or selling and doing a 1031 because a cash-out refinance you know, locks in your interest rate for another 20 or 30 years over a longer term. So I like the reduced interest rate risk there. Um, I just kind of mentioned this and went back to the other bullet point. Consider selling, utilizing a 1031 exchange to defer your capital gains, and then trade up to buy a bigger and a better rental property. So went through a lot of stuff here. We'll put links to some uh, podcasts we've done in the past called the Investment Property Analysis Course. Goes through some examples on here in incredibly, incredible detail. So listen to that. Now, if you're in a situation where you do have equity in your property and you're not sure what to do, because it is confusing. It took me a long time to understand that. Reach out to us. We have a spreadsheet we call our equity optimization spreadsheet. And that will say, hey, great. Here's what happens if you keep the property as is. Here's what happens if you do a cash out refinance. Here's what you do a maximum cash out refinance. And here's what you do if you sell in 1031 and trade up. So it just builds out uh, a results page. that says, hey, cool. Option one, option two, option three. Here's what we can expect. So that spreadsheet is not available for public download because it's a it's a pretty beefy one and it's confusing. So that's something we have to walk uh, investors through. So if you're interested, reach out to us and we can walk your property through there and talk some scenarios. Uh, here's a note too. You know, uh, the general election is coming up November. Um, so typically speaking, most real estate markets, Denver included, it typically slows down right before election. So 30, 30 to 45 days before election time, the market slows down. I don't know why. My guess is just everyone's depressed and hates the other half of the country because you know how that goes around election time. You know, it's just, it gets nasty around election time, unfortunately. So then people get very hyper-focused on there. And so the market does slow down a little bit. Now, again, I'm using air quotes here. This will be a relatively reasonable buying opportunity in the current market conditions. We're in an extreme seller's market. And of course, we got the COVID curveball. So will the market slow down? I don't know, but historically it has. So it might be a good time to buy property at a little bit better discount or a little bit better terms, or just frankly, less other people trying to buy against you during this time. And according to Joe uh, Massey at Castle and Cook, he said, Historically speaking, after the general elections every four years, interest rates tend to go up a little bit after every election. Regardless of if a Republicans or Democrat, which side wins, interest rates generally go up a little bit. Of course, with the Fed and the COVID stuff, who knows what will happen? We're just giving you some historical indicators to keep in, your, in the back of your mind. Uh, last thing to talk about here is if you are thinking about going to forbearance, because I know there's been a lot of those opportunities now with the CARES Act or whatever program that allowed it. Um, make sure you understand the rules because it may delay or limit your ability to buy or refinance another property. Now, I have seen the rules already change three or four times since it came out in March or April. So the rules are very fluid. So make sure you talk with your lender before you go into forbearance, understand the pros and cons, and make sure you do lots of research here because I've already talked to a few people where they went to forbearance. Like, oh, cool, I can save cash flow right now and go into forbearance, then use that cash to buy another property. And like, yeah, they're saving cash, but now they can't go buy another property. So I am not an expert on here. I just know that is a, a red flag. 
and make sure you understand all the rules because they have changed and talk to your lender about forbearance on here. All right. So how can we help? Um, I get this question a lot. You know, I basically boiled down the three bullet points that makes us different from a lot of other agents out there. The first one is that we are investor-friendly realtors. 95% of our transactions are investment properties. We always, there's a few deals about friends and family on, but typically speaking, we're all rental properties, either house tax, nomads, or traditional rental properties. And we range from the single family properties to small apartment buildings, like 20 units and less is tend to be a sweet spot we're in right now. So we are investor-friendly agents. Um, many agents are very impressive one-person shows. You know, hey, they do everything. I'm a very big believer in that we all have our strengths. So play to your strengths, divide and conquer. So we are very team-centric where we have a small team working with clients that are specialists. And so that way, as you move through the transaction process and your whole process, there are different people to be working with because, hey, great, I'm really good at these couple of things and I'm mediocre at the rest. But the areas that I'm mediocre in, my other agents or my other partners here, that's their strength. So you're getting all the strengths uh, playing there. And what's that saying? The, um, you know, master, you know, jack of all, master of none. So I'm a believer in that. Like, cool, I'm really good at a few things and mediocre at a lot. So I play to my strength and I partner with other agents and other team members that are great where their strengths complement mine and vice versa. And we have a really good process that helps us win a lot of properties. Um, and just overall, we get really good client feedback. Third thing is that, you know, I, I got into real estate years ago to retire one day with a nice rental portfolio. And that's what everyone I talk to, they want a rental portfolio one day for retirement needs as well. So most financial planners are great at stocks, bonds, life insurance, and, you know, all this other financial stuff. They don't understand real estate investing. So now we are actively growing out, actually just uh, partnering with an amazing team member whose main focus will be working with clients to actually do annual, you know, like real estate investing financial advisory meetings. We've got a master spreadsheet. We plug in your, your savings, your goals, your current properties, Every year or, or when needed, we review your property, review your portfolio. We say, great, refi this, sell this, bring in better property management here. Oh, you're on track here. Let's buy this other property. And actually, it's going to be a, a systematized way to help you hit towards your long-term goal. So that's something that we offer for clients right now. So if you have any interest in talking with us or working with us or putting together an investment strategy or just need help in these crazy times, reach out to us. You can always email me. Chris at Denver Investment Real Estate, or go to the website, denverinvestmentrealestate.com, find the investment consultation button on there, submit a form, and we'll, you know, what we do is we'll set up a discovery phone call, and this is a phone call with me, where we'll spend about, you know, about 30 minutes of the phone call, kind of getting a high level, hey, what your needs are, what your goals are, and from that call, I will usually have you review a few pieces of information, help you kind of give you some high-level education specific to what you want to do, and have you gather some financial information and write down some goals. And then, you know, a week or a few weeks later, whatever your timeline is, we'll sit down and meet to do a, what we call an investment strategy meeting. And now we're doing these over Zoom with the COVID, but we'll sit down for a good hour or so, plug in some basic numbers, finalize the strategy, and come up with an action plan. So that way we know what the long-term goal is. And we have a meeting action plan to buy the first or the next property for you on there. So feel free to reach out to us. And uh, again, really appreciate you guys listening to this. If you got questions or feedback, reach out to me. Let me know. 
We'll be doing this every quarter and just making it better and better and better. All right. Have a great day. Have a great day.